Welcome to Buddhism Guide's audio blog, a contemporary look at Gautama Buddha's teachings from Kamieshi Rabge. Find out more at www.buddhismguide.org. This episode, Gautama Buddha's first teaching. Gautama Buddha's first teaching was on the Four Noble Truths and it still remains the very foundation on which Buddhism is built. In the next few posts, I'll go through these truths in an easy-to-understand way. I would encourage you to post comments and questions on this blog. That way, I'll be able to clear up any doubts you may have. The first noble truth is, there is suffering. There is a big discussion about the translation of the word suffering, but as nobody has ever come up with a better word, we'll stick with it. Suffering here means a dissatisfaction, discontentment, an uneasy feeling running through our lives. Gautama Buddha stated that there are three types of suffering. Firstly, the suffering of pain. The first one is easy for us to understand as it is our daily suffering. It is when we have a headache, cold, hangover, and so on. This is the physical suffering. Then there is the mental suffering. We may be feeling lonely because someone has left us, or we may be feeling sad because someone has died. These are all the suffering of pain. Secondly, we have the suffering of happiness. Now this one is a bit harder for us to understand. When we are happy, we never think about suffering. But it is there, just lurking around the corner. Let's look at some examples. You buy a new iPad, and you are so happy. You show it to your family and friends, who are all envious. You take the iPad everywhere with you, and use it every day to play games, surf the net, watch films... You could not be happier. Then one day, you can't find it. It has been stolen. Now that happiness you had has now changed into sadness. This is the suffering of happiness. Another example. You're on the metro, sitting opposite the most beautiful person in the world. You start talking and arrange to meet up later that day for a drink. After a while, you become lovers and eventually marry. Your life is total bliss. You are married to the most beautiful person. You couldn't be happier. Then one day, he or she meets someone else and leaves you. Now your happiness has changed and you are feeling sad and angry. This is the suffering of happiness. The third suffering is the all-pervasive suffering. This type of suffering is within everything in our lives, but because it's a suffering on a subtle level, we are prone to miss it. This type of suffering is a condition that exists because of how we perceive ourselves in relation to the world. So you could say that our entire worldly experience is a definition of suffering that we can't even see. So how do we see ourselves in the world? Well, we see them as separate. I'm here, and the world is outside of me. 
in other words, as subject and object. We see ourselves as a solid, independent self. But Gautama Buddha taught that this is not true, and we're actually the coming together of five things, namely the five aggregates. This may sound a little odd, but I'll explain this point in my next blog post. So the way we look at things, subject and object, me and everything else, is in some way the cause of our suffering, and that will come back to us in the future. It is like eating a wonderful meal, but not knowing it has been poisoned. Whilst we're eating the food, we're happy, but later on, once a poison starts to work, we suffer. So why did Buddha want us to know that we had suffering in our lives? Was he trying to depress us? Was he a killjoy? No. The reason he taught this was to help us understand that we have a problem. If we don't know we have a problem, we'll not look for a solution. It is the same as if we don't know we're sick. We will not go to the doctor. If we know we are sick, we go to the doctor and he tells us what is making us sick. He gives us medicine to cure it. It's the same here. If we know we are suffering, we will look for the causes of the suffering and a cure. So Gautama Buddha was showing us that we have a problem. We have to fully understand this point. If we fully understand it, we'll be able to move on to the next noble truth, which is the causes of suffering. This episode, how we experience the world. In my last post, I mentioned the five aggregates. So here is a brief description of each aggregate. The aggregates are form, feeling, conception, mental formation and consciousness. Form. Form, or matter, corresponds to physical factors not only includes our own body, but also the material objects that surround us. Form also includes the five physical sense organs and their corresponding physical objects. The five physical sense organs are eye, ear, nose, tongue and body. Their corresponding objects are visible form, sound smell, taste and touch. Feeling Feeling is the second aggregate and it can be divided into three different types of experience namely pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. There are six kinds of experience five physical and one mental. The experience happen when your eye contacts with a visible form, your ear with sound, your nose with smell, your tongue with taste and your body with any other tangible object. These are the five physical experiences and the mental experience 
is when your mind is in contact with mental objects such as ideas and thoughts. Our feelings are extremely important as in the end they determine what we experience. We all want good feelings and try to avoid bad feelings. However, because we cling desperately to happy times, we become sad and disillusioned when they end. Conception The third aggregate is conception, and this is where we attach a name to an experience. Here, we formulate a conception of an idea about the object we perceive. The purpose of this aggregate is to analyse and investigate. When we come into contact with an object, our conception aggregate categorises it by shape, colour, motion, location, sex and other such categories. These arise as concepts which we are either born with or have added. Concepts can come from parents, school, society, friends and other social groups. Everything we have learned or are learning, including this blog, form our concepts. Mental formation. The fourth aggregate is mental formation. It is the impression created by previous actions. This aggregate starts in the mind and is then reflected in our body and speech. That means whatever action we do in this life is part of this aggregate. Maybe a better way to call this aggregate is mental formation and volition. Volition is the capacity of conscious choice, decision and intention. So the mental formation stems from our past and volition from the present moment. Both function together to determine our response to an object of experience. These responses have moral consequences in the sense of skillful, unskillful and neutral acts. Consciousness. The final aggregate is consciousness, which is very powerful. From this stem the third and fourth aggregates. It is mere awareness of an object. When the eyes and a visible object come into contact, the eye consciousness will become associated with that object and visual consciousness will arise. It is the same with all the six consciousnesses. It should be noted that consciousness is not personal experience, but merely awareness of an object. Personal experiences are produced through the function of the feeling aggregate, the conception aggregate and the mental formation aggregate. These three turn mere awareness into a personal experience. So let's put all this together. Your eyes see the form. Your consciousness becomes aware of it. Your conception identifies it. A pleasant, unpleasant or neutral feeling arises. Your mental formation makes you respond to it with a conditioned reaction stemming from your past. In the Kanda Sutra, Gautama Buddha called them the five clinging aggregates. And this is where the problem comes for us. 
We cling to these aggregates as though they are a self, a solid and permanent you. However, Gautama Buddha taught non-self. When these five aggregates come together, we experience the world. But when they dispense, we stop experiencing the world. He also taught us that there is absolutely no experience other than these five aggregates. These aggregates are ever-changing, and so there really isn't anything solid for us to cling to. When we try to cling to them as a permanent self, we suffer. And this is what Gautama Buddha was pointing out in the first noble truth. This episode, Gautama Buddha's Second Truth In the first truth, Gautama Buddha encouraged us to fully understand that there is suffering in every corner of our lives. In his second truth, he tells us what causes these sufferings. There is not one cause of our suffering, just as there is not one cause of anything. The cause of suffering people talk about the most is craving. However, in this posting, I want to focus on the three poisons. The three poisons are desire, anger and aversion, and unawareness. Let's look at these mental defilements individually. Desire. Our desires are never-ending. Once we have something new, we start wanting something else. Gautama Buddha put it this way. Human desires are endless. It is like the thirst of a man who drinks salt water. He gets no satisfaction and his thirst is only increased. This is because we wrongly believe that material things can make us permanently and truly happy. But if we investigate, we'll find that our desires eventually lead us into a feeling of discontentment. There's no problem in desiring things and trying to make our lives comfortable. The problem is clinging and grasping at these desires. We get attached to things and when they break, are stolen or die, which they inevitably will, we become discontented, unhappy and ill at ease. To break this cycle, we have to see things as they really are, impermanent. Things come into being when the causes and conditions are correct. Once these causes and conditions change, as they will, because they're impermanent, the thing also changes. So if we understand this, we'll not become attached to things, which in turn will end that particular type of suffering. Anger and aversion. Aversion is the opposite to attachment, and anger leads to hatred, discrimination, aggression and a lack of compassion. Neither are helpful emotions. With desire, we want to cling to objects. But with aversion, we do the exact opposite. We spend all our time and energy trying to push the thing away we don't like. As with desire, we just need to let go. 
not hold on to the aversion. Don't engage with it, hold it or repress it. Simply acknowledge you have an aversion and then let it go. If we do not acknowledge our aversions, we're just falling into denial. And this again is not a good state of mind. So just watch the aversion rise and fall. Do not engage it. Just work at letting it go. Some say that anger is natural and should be expressed at all costs. This is because most people only see two ways of dealing with anger. That is, express or repress. Both are unhealthy. If you express it, it can lead to violence, hatred and people's feelings being hurt. Or even worse, if you are the leader of a country, it can lead to war and genocide. If you repress it, you are just storing up trouble for the future. You may be able to keep it down for some time, but eventually it will service and may come back more violent and hurtful. Anger is such a destructive emotion because we engage with it and let it take control of us. So Gautama Buddha had a different idea. He advised us to look at the anger and see where it comes from. It is not to be dealt with, but observed. If we do this, we'll see that it stems from our exaggerating the negative qualities of someone, or projecting negative qualities that are not actually there onto someone or something. One of the best ways of counteracting anger is patience. We should not react straight away, but should count to ten and spend some time reflecting on the situation. This will help us calm down and see things more rationally. Of course, this is not a simple thing to do when one is wrapped up in the moment. So the best thing to do is at the end of the day, look back on when you became angry. See how you could have acted more calmly and imagine the outcome. Slowly, you will learn not to react instantly, but to first reflect. Unawareness. Here, unawareness means lack of understanding of the true nature of things, which leads us to have wrong views. In the Flower Garland Sutra, Gautama Buddha said, Because of their unawareness, people are always thinking wrong thoughts and always losing the right viewpoint and, clinging to their egos, they take the wrong actions. As a result, they come attached to a delusive existence. This is an extremely important point, because if you have a wrong view, it would lead you on to a wrong path and you will get a wrong outcome. In Buddhism, we are looking for freedom or liberation from suffering, discontentment and the unease that runs throughout our lives. But if we do not understand what is causing our suffering, how do we eliminate it? So unawareness means a lack of knowledge, and we have all been in that position. It can take on many forms. If you do not understand another person's culture and discriminate against them, if you do not uh, have education and someone fools you into giving up your life savings, if you do not understand what someone was saying and you get angry with them, 
if you sacrifice animals to a god so as to obtain wealth or good crops, or if you blindly follow a religious practice. The way out of unawareness is to gain knowledge, to ask questions so as to clear up any doubt, and then meditate on this knowledge. This will turn your knowledge into wisdom. Knowledge is learned, but wisdom transcends knowledge and becomes the way you are, the way you act, your very essence. It is the true understanding, not something stemming from your intellect. These three poisons need to be understood and then abandoned. Gautama Buddha stated that it is not enough just to understand the three poisons. He said, until we abandon them, they will keep returning. This episode, Everything Must Change. In the last posting, I mentioned unawareness. So what are the things we're unaware of? Usually, in Buddhism, they talk about three main things, namely, suffering, non-self and impermanence. I've covered suffering in the post entitled, Gautama Buddha's First Truth, and non-self was covered in the post, How We Experience the World. So I'll talk about the third one here, impermanence. In words of my perfect teacher, it states, Whatever is born is impermanent and is bound to die. Whatever is stored up is impermanent and is bound to run out. Whatever comes together is impermanent and is bound to come apart. Whatever is built is impermanent and is bound to collapse. Whatever rises up is impermanent and is bound to fall down. So also, friendship and enmity, fortune and sorrow, good and evil, all the thoughts that run through your mind, everything is always changing. In Tibetan Buddhism, there are four seals, and the first seal is, all compounded things are impermanent. Now, at first glance, that seems a tad depressing. However, if we look closely and contemplate the meaning, it turns out to be a breath of fresh air. The definition of compounded is something that consists of two or more things combined together. All phenomena is compounded, and that includes you and me. Just think for a moment, is there anything in this universe that isn't compounded? As yet, we haven't found anything. The point Gautama Buddha was making here is that anything that is made up of a combination of other things will eventually fall apart. It will come into being when the various causes and conditions are right. It will exist for a certain amount of time, and then it will disintegrate. This is the nature of all things. This is impermanence. It is an undeniable and inescapable fact of life. Impermanence isn't a word we readily are warm to. 
and it would be much nicer for us to believe that everything is permanent. But this simply isn't true, and in order to stop our suffering, we need to acknowledge this fact. The reason we do not like to hear about impermanence is because it brings up visions of sickness, pain, disintegration and death. We get a horrible sick feeling in our stomachs because we equate impermanence with loss. Loss of loved ones, loss of friends or even loss of something as trivial as a mobile phone. So it is vitally important for all of us to understand impermanence. Why is it important? What are the benefits of understanding it? It means we'll achieve freedom from fear, freedom from suffering and freedom from panic. Because when we know things are not going to last, we are free from any fear, agony or pain of losing something or someone. Our mistaken belief is that things come into existence on their own and last forever. This kind of mistaken belief causes us to cling to worldly possessions, such as material objects, the search for pleasure, recognition, honour, and so on. It causes pride, attachment, aversion, and arrogance to grow within us, because we truly believe things are here to stay. We grow completely attached to the concerns of this life. So it's a relief when we finally understand that everything is impermanent and we can't do a thing to change that fact. We can now let go and relax our grip on things. That's a real breath of fresh air. Impermanence is not only true for pleasurable things, but for painful things as well. Maybe someone you care for has died or left you and you are sad and lonely. These emotions are also impermanent and so will, after some time, also change. All the things we have aversion towards will only last a short time. In 37 practices of all Buddha's sons, it states, Like the dew that remains for a moment or two, on the tips of the grass and then melts with the dawn, the pleasure we find in the course of our lives last only an instant. They cannot endure. This episode... Gautama Buddha's Third Truth This truth is called Nirvana, Liberation, Enlightenment and so on. It is hotly debated these days. Some think that if you reach Nirvana, you will never be born again. Others think you will be reborn, but you can pick where. For people who do not believe in rebirth, they see it as something we can achieve in this lifetime. I have no idea who is right and who is wrong. It may be they're all wrong. I will just write my thoughts here and you can decide for yourselves what you believe. I will show you that there are two good bits of news in this third noble truth. I do not see Nirvana as some mystical 
or metaphysical thing. I do, however, believe it is beyond our concepts of right and wrong, good and bad, existence and non-existence. All these are positions relative to each other, mere labels created by language. This means it cannot be fully realised through language alone, and is only reached through meditation and implementation. Gautama Buddha said that Nirvana is the highest happiness, but he wasn't talking about mundane happiness we strive for in our everyday lives. He was talking about absolute freedom from evil, freedom from craving, attachment, desire, hatred and unawareness. All of this we can achieve in this very lifetime by truly understanding the Four Noble Truths and following the Eightfold Path. Once we start meditating on these teachings and turning them from knowledge to wisdom, we'll start to change our actions of body, speech and mind. Remember, knowledge is something learned, something intellectual, whereas wisdom is a part of our very lives. So this is the first bit of good news. Nirvana can be reached by anyone, whether they call themselves Buddhist or not. You just have to put in the work. People think that Nirvana is like heaven, full of happiness, the opposite to this world. They imagine that the sun shines brightly every day. Only good people are around them. One doesn't have to work. There are no money worries. Everybody is friendly. And every moment is filled with happiness. However, this is just a projection of our dualistic minds, trying to fill heaven with all the things we like best. But what about all the things other people like, and we don't? I would want a heaven where no one eats meat, while others would want one where they could eat a big fat juicy steak every day. Do we each get a heaven of our own? I believe if people really gave some thought to their concept of heaven, they would understand they were just changing one conditioned world for another. That way, heaven, like this world, would be equally impermanent. So this is the second bit of good news. We do not have to die to attain nirvana. It can be obtained during this lifetime. Death is irrelevant to nirvana. People fear like this life is full of discontentment and causes them nothing but suffering. And the only way out is death. They feel at death they will be miraculously transported to a better place. But nirvana isn't a place. It's the cessation of the three poisons, namely desire, anger and unawareness. The Buddha defined it as perfect peace, or a state of mind that is free from craving, anger and other afflictive states. So in a nutshell, I believe nirvana isn't a metaphysical thing. It isn't a place to go to. And we do not have to die to realise nirvana. It is an extinguishing of our afflictive states of mind and can be reached by anyone in this very lifetime.
This episode, Gautama Buddha's fourth truth. What is your view? In the fourth of Gautama Buddha's truths, he explains the path we need to take to free ourselves from suffering. It is known as the Eightfold Path and it comprises of three aspects. Seeing clearly is the first aspect and includes right view and right intention. The second aspect is living responsibly and this includes right speech, right action and right livelihood. The third and final aspect is staying focused and this includes right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. Over the next few postings I will cover all of the Eightfold Path. But for today let's talk about right view. Setting off on the Eightfold Path without the right view is like starting a journey without a map. If you get into your car without knowing where you're going and what landmarks you will encounter along the way, you are bound to get lost. Similarly, if you set off on this path and have no idea what you're doing, you will also become lost and disillusioned. First, get the view correct, and the rest of the path will become clearer. You'll be able to dispel any confusion or misunderstandings, and have a better understanding of reality. We need to understand the Four Noble Truths and the workings of cause and effect. This is the right view. When we understand the Four Noble Truths, we will also understand that the causes of our suffering lie within our own minds. We will then realise that Nirvana, the escape from suffering, also lies within our minds. Once we know this, we will want to look for the causes of this suffering, which are the three poisons, attachment, anger and unawareness. Finally, having understood that life is suffering, we will be ready to set off along the Eightfold Path. We should also ensure we have an understanding of cause and effect. Here, some would say we actually need to understand the workings of karma, But this is such a hot potato these days. If you believe in karma and rebirth, and it motivates you to be a good person, then follow that view. However, if you are not a lover of rebirth, and prefer to keep your Buddhism firmly planted in this life, then you should understand the workings of cause and effect. Whatever we do, there will be a result. If we kill someone... We will be punished. If we lie and cheat, people will dislike us. If we are unwilling to help people, then they will not want to help us when we need it. If we are a kind, caring and compassionate person, people will be drawn to us. If we are generous, we will get back far more than we give. Here, I am not talking in monetary terms, but in the wonderful satisfaction of helping others. Life is like an echo. Whatever you put out, comes back. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Whatever you give, you will get. Whatever you do will always come back to you. 
This is not some metaphysical dogma, just plain common sense. It is the way life is. So by understanding cause and effect, we will be driven to act in a kind and compassionate way. If you understand it and still decide to act in an unhelpful way, you will only have yourself to blame when things don't go right for you. Once you have the right view concerning suffering and cause and effect, you will be ready to move along the path. Next time, I'll talk about right intention. You can find more information about this subject in Kami Yeshe Rabge's books The Best Way to Catch a Snake and Life's Meandering Path. They're available now from Amazon and Kindle. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this audio blog.